Hi, everyone. This is Robin Kennedy, and welcome to PGIP Tech Governance Meeting. So every Thursday night at 8 o'clock, we're here, and we talk about great governance topics, such as internal controls and information security controls and risk management, um, risk management training, security awareness training. And um, I was having a conversation with my, with my boss the other day, and we were talking about a friend of mine who's going to get a job at a place where she used to work. And she worked there a long time ago, and we were talking about it, and I thought, wow, you know, if only I knew then what I know now, you know, what things would I do differently? And it sparked a conversation uh, between my boss and myself about what kinds of things would we do differently back then, whether it was team management or things we would do differently in technology. So. I thought that would be a, a great topic for the governance meeting. So tonight, what you're going to see is the first time ever that I have shared career secret secrets I wish I knew sooner. Um, I've changed the title several times. It used to be things I wish I know now, then or, or some of those negative topics, but uh, negative titles. But career secrets I wish I knew sooner, um, I think really fits. And so what I've done is I put together, we'll get started, a little overview. So just so everyone knows, it's a collection of lessons learned over time by myself or observed in others um, and recommended to me. So I reached out to Doc and I reached out to several other people who've, who've been around the block for a couple of decades. And, and what are the things that they wish they had known 30 years ago or 20 years ago or even 10 years ago? And I gathered up that information and I'm going to weave some stories in to illustrate, you know, how I've experienced these things throughout my career. And hopefully they'll help all of you. And then as with most things, the situation's going to dictate the correct path for you. I wouldn't recommend doing exactly what I, what I said I did. Um, and the reason for that is every situation is different. Every person is different. Every communication style is different. Your interaction model is going to be different, but I think the techniques and some, some things that I explained will help you in your environment, but it's not going to be the same as somebody else's experience. And then take them in the spirit in which they're meant. So they're food for thought. Um, develop and trust your own gut. So uh, once, many years ago, someone asked me, well, you know, what does your gut say? Or what does your gut instinct say? Well, instinct is really, you know, food, shelter, water. We need to eat. You know, we need to drink water. We need to sleep in a dry place. I mean, we have instincts and maternal instincts, paternal instincts. That's different than gut instincts in a corporate environment or judgment that turns your instincts turns into an instinct based on experience so when someone says you know trust your gut that really isn't your lizard brain or or something you were born with it's something you've learned over time so i hope some of the things i share tonight can help you um, trust your gut so let's get started So the very first thing I want to talk about is being a good person. Uh, that's it. So I'm not, um, I'm not a bigot. I'm not prejudiced. Are you a good person or are you not? Period. That's the way it rolls with me. Because being a good, when you're a good person, it really shows. So it's the golden rule, right? Do unto others and things like that. But it doesn't always work this way, does it? So has anyone ever gone through a group team building session like, a new team at work where there's lots of new hires and no one really knows each other or you're on an existing team and and they want to try you know something new or tackle some big issue or project together there's usually an experienced leader in the room several middle leaders or middle managers and then the rest of the group so the rest of the technologists the dynamic changes all the time because each group looks for permission from their leader to speak or be open or let's say the support person or the app developer needs to provide input but but what will usually happens is that they'll wait until the given verbal or nonverbal permission from their direct manager to speak but even before that the manager looks to the senior leader in the room and tries to learn really will it be open in here can i trust this space and 
whatever feedback or discussion happens. So the senior leader sets the tone or the senior person in the room sets the tone. The manager then gives the okay for everybody else to talk. And then the team members relax into the session and hopefully you can have a productive session. So all of this can happen non-verbally, um, verbally, but most of the time it happens non-verbally. Within the first few minutes, the mood in the room is determined and with it, the course of discussion. So I was in a, a session like this once on a new team and we managers in the room reported to the CIO who was also in attendance. There were just a, a few team members in the room other than us and the CIO, um, Jeff was his name and he was he was kind of a, a casual guy. He was very calm and, and, and soft-spoken. I mean, he, he knew his stuff and he was sharp, but he just had a very calm demeanor. But the managers in the room, we were really strong personalities. So we were kind of surprised that he hired this layer of strong personalities. So for the first few days of the week, the mood in the room was extremely tense. There was lots of conflict, lots of animosity, and, and the, the, tense, the tense, tense, tension in the room was palpable. I, I used my text pager. So for those of you who don't know what a text pager was, back in the day we had pagers, right? because the smartphone wasn't invented yet. And it was really cool that on this little tiny pager that you could click real fast and type through letters and you could actually type words on the pager and, and, and send them to other people. I don't know if anybody in the room remembers the text pagers, but um, we would text back and forth to each other while the room, while the, the meeting was going on. And, and so we'd, usually text something negative like oh yeah right like that's gonna happen or yeah there it was you said it again so we were being really snarky in our text pages back and forth to each other so after a nearly a week of these sessions all day long one night and i was just ugh, just so exhausted from all this and i had an epiphany and it came out of nowhere and it just swept over me and i thought well, what if i'm the problem and what if my presence it's what is what made the meeting every day so tense and i've always been a strong personality as some in the room can attest and after all the marines isn't for the meek right but i i took time that night to replay every day in my mind i went through every action i took every comment that i made every time i was silent and i thought did i express my opinion or did i indict the current speaker did I encourage open discourse with each other? Or did I talk over everybody and interrupt them and not let them finish their ideas? Did I disrespect their time and opinions? Did I back up my peers or did I fight my peers? Did I back up my boss or did I really try to hear him? Was I part of the problem? So I gave my, uh, that a lot of thought that night. And it occurred to me that your energy introduces you before you even speak. So you've been around people who seem to command a room, even you know when they enter it without saying a word. This, this is actually a good quality. It's called command presence, but it can be used inappropriately. And it's generally a good thing, but watch your nonverbals. Do you slam your notebook down when you get in the room? Do you sigh and sit reluctantly like, oh gosh, another meeting or showing people you really don't want to be there or, or you can't be bothered to be there? Do you, do you speak to anyone in the room or do you fiddle with your phone or your mobile device or how do you show up? Yes, ma'am, it can be detected even in virtual environments. So look people in the eye when you're not in a virtual environment. Engage them, smile, say hello. If you don't know them, introduce yourself. So one story, uh, I used to work at Marriott. So I worked at the Marriott headquarters in Bethesda. I was in their internal audit department. This was just a few years ago. And I did a lot of audits. I audited Marriott rewards. I did a lot of, uh, I did a lot of, um, information security audits, a lot of IT audits, a lot of process audits. And one I did, I discovered that a policy at Marriott isn't what you and I would think of as a policy. So we think of as a policy as, a, let's say, a document 
that declares the company's intention. So we will secure our information. That is our policy. It is our policy to guard our passwords. Well, at Marriott, they have thousands of policies. Now, in IT, usually a large company has 10, 20, 15, 25, let's say, information technology policies. That's really all you need. But this company had thousands of them. And what I discovered was they had a policy for everything. They have a policy. I don't know if any of you stayed at Marriott's or a Marriott, um, um, not a franchise, but one of the Marriott brands. They have a policy for how the shampoo will be displayed. They have a policy for exactly how many towels in a room or how those towels will be folded. I mean, they have a policy for every single thing they do. And one of the most intriguing to me was the policy for greeting a guest. So in a lobby or in the hallway, you run into one of the housekeeping people. They have a policy that within 10 feet, you will make eye contact with the person within five feet, you'll speak. And that always that always resonated with me. And so I started to notice. And sure enough, at every Marriott where I stayed, uh, I, I noticed that within even farther than 10 feet, um, the, the Marriott associate would engage me, would make eye contact with me. And then as I got closer, they would speak to me. And they looked me in the eye and generally cared what I said. And so that really struck me. And I, I, I discovered then, you know, the power of eye contact. And, and looking them in the eye. Right, Thomas. And, and, you know, when you stay at other types of hotels, watch them too. Because what I started noticing was that other brand hotels, they look at the floor. So unless they are specifically in a customer service role, like behind the desk or the concierge area where they get paid to talk to you, um, most of the time they're looking, they'll look at the floor. They try to make themselves invisible. But Marriott, every single one of them will talk to you because it is the part of their policy, but it's caught on in their culture. So the next thing I'd recommend is ask about a person's day or a weekend and be genuine about it. So people can, people can, um, can detect if you are being disingenuous or if you're being fake and you don't really care. So how many times you pass somebody, hey, how you doing? Hey, how you doing? Do you really want to know? So think about that every time you use that language. Do you want to know? Do you really want to know? And then actually engage them. People really like to talk about themselves. So these actions set the tones for the meetings and set the tone for the engagement that you're about to have with someone or the working relationship that you're trying to build. Next one is very near and dear to me, which is the content of your character should be obvious. So then think about how you're perceived. Perception determines your reception. So the perception that someone has of you will determine how they receive you and how they interact with you. So be authentic, not just because we all want to portray that we're, hey, we're good people, but let's be pragmatic about it, right? We want or need something from that person, or they want or need something from us. But remember that humans generally want to help other people. That's how we're wired. We have an inner nature to help, to assist and to nurture. Avoid phrases like, why did you do blah, 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 right? Or what's going on with blah, blah, blah. So avoid being accusatory and use phrases like, help me understand blah, blah, blah. Because that's a whole lot different than why did you blah, blah, blah. Instead of just going into an interrogation, say, I need help with X, Y, Z. And then this gives nod and respect to the other person that you respect them, their expertise. And at the same time, you are confident enough in yourself to ask for help. And finally, on the be a good person, it shows page is kindness matters being transparent and kindness. So be kind. It matters more than anything else. You know, who are you more likely to help? Who are you more likely to speak highly of or help with a project or promote or give good feedback? Someone who's mean and negative and silent and gives off the feeling that they can't be bothered with you or someone who's kind and helpful and followed through for you and really came through for you. 
a quick story recently at, at CarMax headquarters, which is where I work now, uh, many of us wear CarMax branded golf shirts and jeans to work every day. A lot of people wear just, you know, shorts and a t-shirt. It's just that kind of company. Um, but I really enjoy wearing the CarMax branded stuff because it simplifies the question, you know, what am I going to wear today? Well, I know. And so as a Marine, you know, I never had to worry about what to wear every day, right, for years. And so I really like wearing my CarMax golf shirts. Well, we recently got rebranded in the uh, technology department. So now we're CarMax technology. And so they ordered new branded golf shirts. And the um, director in charge, you know, wanted to make sure everybody wanted one. And I said, please, please, Melanie, you know, I sent her an email. I said, please get the 100% cotton. Everybody today is ordering that moisture wicking stuff, and I hate it, right? It's sticky, and it makes me feel hotter. And so I begged her. I said, please do 100% cotton. Well, she emailed me back, and then we forgot about it. And then I got an email directly from Staples, who does all of our branded, branded um, materials. And long story short, Staples custom-made 200% golf, uh, cotton golf shirts for me with the CarMax tech lo technology logo on it. And kindness matters, right? I'll never forget what she did for me. Um, Demetria says, her son got chosen from a law school waitlist because of his kindness. Oh, that's perfect. See, he made my point. And when I first glanced at that, I thought, oh, God, he, he got he got declined because he was kind. Oh, that would not be good. That would blow my theory, right? <laughs> so thanks for sharing that. So the next one is be the expert without being arrogant. This is a biggie. So you know the kind of people that walk around throwing around their expertise and all their acronyms and that arrogant person, you know, don't be that person because again, kindness matters. And remember, you are the expert in being you. Your coworkers are the expert in being themselves. So from a business perspective, you are the expert in IT, but when you're meeting someone with the, from the business, remember that they are the expert in what they do. So don't expect them to understand you. More on this later, right? I'll talk about that in more detail in another topic. But first, you know, avoid reading your resume to people all the time. I know people like this. I'm sure you all know people like this. Have you ever met someone or worked with someone who's always talking about where they worked before? This is another one. Well, at Microsoft, we blah, 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 blah. Or at the Federal Reserve, we did A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Ugh. You're not there anymore, right? You're here with us now. You're on this team. So what are we going to do? Or someone who's constantly reading you the res their resume, unless specifically ask, avoid it, right? Adopt the Marine Corps strategy of quiet professionalism. That means you're confident in your own abilities. So you don't have to constantly read your resume to people or challenge people about theirs. So recently, two women graduated from the US Army's Rangers School. So Captain Greist and Lieutenant Haver um, graduated at Fort Benning and they were the first women to earn the prestigious Army Ranger tab. And so many people expected to see them on magazine covers and making the talk show rounds, but you know, that hasn't happened. A lot of people didn't even know that that happened. But these two women who are both um, West Point graduates, they went back to their military jobs. They turned down dozens of interviews. They politely declined. Even when a network news anchor asked them to per personally to come on their show, because they wanted to get back to what they did best, soldiering. They couldn't, they could have been celebrities, but they want to be the soldiers that they want to be. So quiet professionalism. One key thing, there are many experts in the room. You are there for a reason. You are hired for a reason. Your skills are put to use. You contribute, you matter. You wanted the seat at the table, you got it. You already have the job. You don't need to interview every day with everyone you meet. 
balance your contributions, show up and deliver, and build a reputation for delivery, for results, for support, for teamwork, for partnerships, and then above all, for humility. Sometimes something is better explained when printed. Very tactical, but we love technology, of course. But sometimes some things are better explained when they're printed on a piece of paper or drawn by hand with a pencil or pen. I used to be known for carrying around a coffee cup filled with colored pens and pencils. Um, I did a lot of meetings with a lot of executives and IT in the business. I met with regulators and auditors and a lot was at stake a lot of the time. So here I am walking around the halls with my little coffee cup filled with crayons, right? But I always had my portfolio with me with clean sheets of paper because I always had to draw something every single meeting. I'd sit next to the person and draw as I spoke. Every single time, every single time, the listener would refer to the piece of paper that I had drawn during the rest of the discussion, get involved in it, talk about it and add to it. We'd scribble on it, we'd use different colors. We achieved a mutual understanding with that silly little drawing so much quicker. I'll talk about that a little bit later too. Here's another one of my favorites. More than two emails or texts, you should be calling that person. And then building up others doesn't make you weak. Doing it actually makes you stronger. A simple compliment or acknowledgement can change everything. For example, if you're in a conversation with two or three people and you give an opinion or an observation and one of them says, sure, or right, or they say nothing, or what if they say, that's a great observation. I never thought of it that way. Which of the three made you feel better? Try this next time, right? Try this next time in any interaction. That's a great observation. I never thought of it that way. But avoid the salesy method, and this is really big for accounting or big for consulting. That's a really great question. I hate that. So I have a vendor you know, showing me this awesome new software and saying, you know, it does this, 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 and this, and then comes to Q&A and I'll ask a question. That's a really great question. I wonder if there are any bad questions, right? Because every time I'm with a salesperson, every time I ask a question, they must have all gone to, gone to salesperson school because they all say, that's a really great question. Well, thank you. That's a really great question. Don't do that. It's just a vocalized pause so that you can they can get their information together. <laughs> the next one, loyalty is earned, right? It's not given. It's not on demand. It doesn't come with your position, your title, or, or the acronyms that you've learned. And sometimes I see some of these conference flyers. I used to speak at some of the industry conferences, some of the big ones like InfoSec World and Super Strategies. And I just thought it was always so funny when you look through it and you see people's names and they have they have three lines of acronyms. And I don't even know what 99% of those acronyms mean, right? But to some people, those acronyms are really important. But give trust and respect to others freely, like putting a bowl of candy on your desk that you let everyone come over and have. And I got to tell you, this is a really great technique. So if you work in, a, in, a, in an office area and a cube farm or, or even an open area, just get some Halloween candy and a candy dish. And I can't tell you how many conversations or deals have been struck or alliances or relationships have been built because you got this silly little candy jar in your office. Uh, my boss has one in hers and uh, she's a British lady. She loves British chocolate and she hates American chocolate, but she stocks that thing with so much American chocolate. And there's always people coming down into her office, grabbing some candy, chit-chatting with her, and then off they go. Those are some serious relationships. Have the backs of your coworkers and your boss. Don't view frontline tasks as beneath you because nothing is. I used to say to my boss that, you know, back in the day, I'd take out the trash if you asked me to, right? You're paying me. We built that trust and loyalty. And I had folks on my team who'd say the same to me. But that is the mark of a trusted and inspiring leader 
or coworker. Just be open-minded. View your coworkers as people first. People with hopes and dreams and happiness and sadness and challenges, successes. Some have health problems maybe, or they're dealing with family issues, or they could be alone. They're people. Value and encourage courageous conversation. Ask what people really think and encourage the truth from them. Inspire trust and respect by trusting and respecting other people. And finally, um, the last part of be the expert without being arrogant is thank everyone. Um, it's funny because if I see my boss at the end of the day, and I don't see her very much, but uh, if I see her at the end of the day, she always jingles in her little British accent. Thank you. Come back tomorrow. <laughs> I laugh at her. At first, it stopped me in my tracks. I'm like, does she know something? I don't know. Am I not going to come back tomorrow? What's going on? So the suspicious part of me of the past, you know, 30 years of experience was like, wow, why is she saying that to me? But then over time, as we built our trust, I understood. So even if I hadn't seen her all day or for days, she still thanks me because she appreciates just my being here. Doc, in every meeting that she's in, she'll thank you at the end. She truly gets the gift of time the gift you have given to her of your time. Same thing at work. When you engage with others, you need something from them, you get something from them, get time from them. As simple as it may seem, just thank them for it. From the clerk at the grocery store, or the toll booth attendant, or your spouse, or your kids, or your boss, or your friends at work, they don't have to give the, their time and they don't have to help you, so thank them. So the key thing to remember, this is one of my favorite things too, and I wish I would have written it on the slide. Maybe I will before I finally publish it, is the key takeaway. If you leave here remembering nothing else from tonight, is that people don't remember what you say. They remember how you made them feel. Next idea is about change, right? So change is really the only thing you can count on. So gone are the days when you thought you could work at the same plant or, or carry the same family business, when you would work at the same place and retire after decades and get a gold watch and a Teamsters party and a retirement pension. Today, you can expect to move around and go where the jobs are. Layoffs are common. Raises hover at 3%, just enough to cover inflation. No matter if you do a good job or not, if you get an exceptional, right? Or if you get just a strong or very strong, usually it's going to be around 3%. Business conditions change. New technology renders your technology obsolete. Bosses come and go. Coworkers come and go. I looked up a few statistics from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and on average, a person changes jobs 12 to 15 times during their careers. Many spend five years or less in every job. We spend more time devoted to transitioning from one job to another than we do at the job. By January of 2018, the median tenure was four years. When I worked at Capital One, I worked for Capital One for 10 years and I change jobs every 18 months because that's how quickly the company changed. So expect to change jobs, even if you change jobs internally. You, you're going to be lured by higher pay or better benefits or relocation or career advancement or outsourcing. And it might depend on exterior drivers, but ultimately it's your values and what you want to do, you are in control. So learn to surf the change curve by being aware of what's going on around you and through continuous learning. So embed learning in everything you do. Learn everything. Every opportunity, job, experience, or daily interaction is a learning opportunity. So I worked at Floor Daniel, which is an international engineering firm in the 90s. Uh, they build 
power plants and they do po- process engineering and they um, partnered with Duke Energy and they do all of Duke Energy's engineering and construction. And so um, I had just left college because, you know, you got to eat. So I left um, full-time college and I got a job at Floor Daniel inserting network cards into their PCs because they were switching over to Ethernet. Now, I had built PCs, um, soldering motherboards and doing all kinds of stuff from scratch. This was back in the day when Michael Dell was still in college. And and I got this job putting these NIC cards in these machines, but I paid attention, right? Next thing I know, I was the support person for one of the main floors. Then I was the support person for multiple floors in that building. And then I moved because everything that I learned, I retained. Then I moved to land management. So suddenly I was doing all the networking support. Then we got outsourced and I was outsourced to another company. That's another story. But from that moment, from those knit cards at that company, I grew into significant leadership position because I paid attention. I learned everything that was in front of me. Um, I wasn't afraid to ask questions. And I also um, never had to be told something twice. So if I learned something from from a, a, a senior network engineer or someone like that, it, they taught me something, I never had to ask that question again. I made sure that that I leveraged every piece of learning that was right in front of me, that was just part of my job. So remember when I talked about experts in the room? So you're going to learn from them and they'll learn from you. So keep your eyes and ears open to what's going on around you because you'll learn from that too. So formal learning is also extremely important because it makes other opportunities work for you. So many companies offer um, tuition assistance. My company does. And I just don't understand why people don't all take advantage of that because if you don't use it, you're leaving money on the table and education. So many companies will send you to a conference or pay for additional certifications. So volunteer, take the training. You don't know if tomorrow you'll be called in a room and told that your job has been eliminated. That happens to a lot of people more than more than we like to hear. Or on a happier note, you don't know if an event or challenge that's being faced by the company and you're the only one who's acquired the skill to resolve it. So how cool would that be, right? So you would know, you would be prepared. You would, you would have the answer when no one else did because you paid attention and you kept learning. So keep learning. Networking, this is a huge one that's personal to me that would go on the biggest mistakes that I made 30 years ago. And that is not realizing the value of networking early enough. I was stubborn. I grew up having to be self-sufficient, which made me an adult who had to be self-sufficient and do everything myself. I didn't ask for help because I thought it was a sign of weakness. I thought people would, would think bad of me because I admitted I'd need help. In the Marines, the same thing. If I didn't handle everything myself, It was a sign of weakness that made me even a bigger target. At one company, they moved me to California um, to an acquisition, and I had a few months to bulldoze the entire infrastructure and put in hours, right? They relocated me, but I never unpacked the boxes in my apartment. I worked all the time. I went home only to sleep, and I worked on the weekends too. But to what end? Yeah, I pulled off the project in a few months, but at at what price personally? I didn't realize back then how big a deal networking really was. So big message that I have for you is know that LinkedIn is a real thing. I thought when it came out, it was just, oh, another one of those social media things. But LinkedIn has really become a very real thing. It's Facebook for professionals. LinkedIn matters. When you have relationships inside and outside your company, you bring significant value to the table. When you have a large, genuine network of people, you have a bigger worldview. And you can view day-to-day challenges differently. You can draw on the expertise of your own network. Because remember what I said before, everybody wants to help everyone else. 
you don't have to be the one who knows everything because you know and can call upon people who do. One of the most valuable strengths in any employee, even any leader, is not knowing everything, but knowing where to go or from whom to get the answer. So for those of you who know what a Rolodex is, you know what I'm talking about. Someone with a deep Rolodex who can make things happen, who can solve problems quickly, they don't have to be the expert in everything, but they know people who are. If your job is eliminated or you just want to move on, you can ping your network because, hey, they know people who know people, and then you're in. No random resume submission or waiting to see um, if the recruiting database spit you out as a likely candidate. I found out that a whopping 70% of jobs come from networking. Some say it's 80 to 85%. Also, this was a striking uh, statistic to me, at least 70% of jobs are not listed. So if you're spending your time on Monster, or you're spending your time on job boards, you're wasting your time because you're only looking at 30% of what's really available. So in my department alone, this is a real good example. On the cyber operations side, I'm over on risk. We started with three people in cyber ops. Two of those are no longer here, but now there's a director and 20 cyber folks in just two years. The significant part about this is every single one of them were hired via networking. Each one of them knew someone who knew the right candidate. And the director himself was a referral from another executive in a different department. So build your network. Visit LinkedIn often. Contribute to discussions. I still get inv invitations to connect to people from, I don't even know, but they know someone that I do. And a lot of recruiting happens on LinkedIn too, to keep your profile up to date. Disney just recently reached out to a friend of mine based solely on her LinkedIn profile. Recruiters troll also, and they steal talent from other companies. Some of the people on our team were directly plucked from other companies. So nurture your relationships at work because if one of them moves on for a new opportunity, they just might name you if a role comes up in their new organization. Relationships are key for many reasons. This is how it all works. So the change curve that's up here at the top of the slide, I'm gonna zoom in on it a little bit. So for those of you who haven't seen a change curve before, surf it, don't fight it. Change is gonna happen. It's gonna, re it's gonna happen, it's a very real process. So what you see on the screen is the change curve. So morale and competence is the vertical and over time is the horizontal. So at the beginning when a change happens, you're gonna feel shock and denial, like, oh no, like for example, being outsourced. So at Floor Daniel in support, I was outsourced three or four times. I had tons of different people, Cisco, I mean, whoever they did a contract with, my badge seemed to change every couple of weeks, right? Because they, they would just come in, sign a new contract, and then all of us would be augmented into that company. So shock and denial are very real. Frustration happens during that period because things are different. So I would have a new scope of work and, and something that I could help an engineer with one day tomorrow because I'm a, under a new contract. I can't help you with that because it's not in the scope of work. That's painful. That's frustrating. So things don't go right, um, so you get depressed. And then as time passes, you start to experiment with the new situation or the new idea. And then eventually you make a decision and you learn how to work in the new situation and you feel more positive or honestly, you leave the situation. And then finally, integration. So you're aligned with the change. You're, you're a renewed individual if you haven't left prior to that point. So are you one of the naysayers that people hate to see coming? Um, are you one of the people that, that gets upset, that, that says, oh no, not another change, and, and um, fights it? Are you known for, 
for bad mouthing everything, regardless what it is? Are you viewed like pig pen and peanuts with a cloud of negativity over your head and people hate to see you coming because here comes that negative Nelly cloud over their head? Um, that makes um, networking and ally building extremely difficult. So thoughtful questioning and seeking to understand the change is very different than adopting, oh, here we go again, attitude. Be a change champion. The change might be painful. It might be uncomfortable for everyone. And you might find yourself actually welcoming the change or carrying that scope of work in your back pocket. The same goes, and this is another thing, the same goes for um, I'm sorry, I was looking at the chat, got derailed there for a second. Um, the same goes for talking bad about users. So this is one of my biggest pet peeves about I IT people is you don't understand that there's a history between the business and IT, and it's in every company. I don't care what your widget is or the product that you make. The business resents us. They resent IT as gatekeepers to progress. It's um, and that we're hard to work with. And because our answer is always no, or it's going to cost way too much, or because IT doesn't know how to solve the problem, but they don't want to admit it. And so just saying no is easier than looking bad. So IT resents the business because they hold the purse strings, or they think the problem is the most important problem, or they just don't understand technology and have no desire to understand it. But bad-mouthing the business is a big thing I see IT folks do. It's one of the worst possible things you can do. You're disrespecting your user base. And why do you exist in the company? You exist to provide services to your user base. So it's kind of like cutting off your nose to spite your face, right? Or biting the hand that feeds you. We in IT exist to provide technology services for users who use those services to make money or service our customers, which pays our paychecks, or in some companies to save lives. So we should remember that our users are customers, are our customers, and always view the world through the user's lens whenever we design or imp implement anything. Some IT people are difficult to work with, two and a half months, but I finally got what I wanted. See, and it shouldn't have taken you that long, Teresa, okay? So there was some kind of uh, communication gap happening between you two, you know, that you didn't understand each other. So the next time this happens, just call me in, I'll help do a facilitation session, and we'll get you all speaking the same language, all right? Next one, tech isn't always the best way. I mean, we're technologists, we can't help it. Technology is a creative endeavor, and most people don't think that it's creative, but we are. We're artists, and we view the gadget and tool for not what we see on the surface, but what we know or think or visualize is happening underneath, right? That's the miracle of technology. We love new gadgets, new apps, new tools. We love to see what they'll do. And we love to see if someone will click on the phishing email gym. We love the wow factor of the new WhizBang solution. But sometimes the simplest solution and the best one is to use a piece of paper or to use a manual process. So sometimes printing a piece of paper is the best way to view it or explain it to someone else. Workflow systems, for example, or, or enterprise software can have a dehumanizing effect and sometimes technology-driven processes drive the humans rather than augmenting us or helping us. So avoid technology for technology's sake. Just because there's something cool, whiz-bang new that'll do it doesn't mean you should. It takes the people out of it or drives the people and can over time cost a ton more money, time, effort, and energy than doing something manually. So remember that. So like an ATM. So back in the day, ATMs were just a screen with some white text or a green screen or maybe black with a green text, which by the way, was the first human to mainframe interface was an ATM. So walk up to an ATM now and the graphics are exciting. They look like a slot machine. They're slick, they show people smiling and interacting with the bank, and but the machine still performs the same basic function it did years ago with white text on black background. But now 
the ATM displays not only the images of people, but also images of checks and images of receipts, right? It's trying to make this flat screen more human. So people will recognize and relate with the images quicker than they can process letters. So we perceive pictures faster than we can read letters. So at Capital One, here's another story about Capital One. I built an intricate program to identify and manage operational risks, right? It was a $50 million program, impacted the entire company. I needed a team of 40 people to pull it off. It was difficult to explain to some people who had no knowledge. Again, they weren't experts in it, but I was. They had no knowledge of risk presented by the systems or processes that we used. And so I tried to develop an elevator speech, right? Or a way to explain the program in less than two minutes because you've got to get buy-in for people to actually help you do the program. So I put myself in the business owner's shoes and looked at it from their perspective. And then I consolidated it down to a single page with multiple boxes on it, simple. I carried, I called it my walk around deck. I carried it everywhere I went. So in hallway conversations, I had moments with someone in an elevator. I took advantage of a single printed page. But if I had emailed it to that many people with the explanation that it would have needed, right? They would have not understood it or disregarded its importance. But I explained the concept on a single page with pictures and I made it resonate with everyone who saw it. So everyone is busy. Assume that everyone has a full inbox. I do. Amen in this room, right? Everybody who's listening to me, call, visit, or chat. Something doesn't always have to be an email. It doesn't always have to have 10,000 words in it before you get to the point. Assume everyone's busy. Call or visit if possible. Here's another one. More than two emails, get in touch directly. There's nothing more frustrating than receiving an email with pages and pages of reply all messages. Another tactical select, um, suggestion I have is if a topic takes more than two emails or texts, call that person or sit down with them. It's extremely difficult to follow a message when there's been multiple replies or reply all. You open the email, you read some cryptic line first, having no idea what they're talking about. You have to scroll all the way to the bottom of the message when you probably weren't copied on and then try to read up to get the whole story before you even know what's going on or before anything makes sense. But only then you discover that the email wasn't even meant for you or you were CC'd on it. How much time and effort were just wasted. So here's another key tip, another secret. Lobbing over the wall and saying, not it, will not make you successful. Some people think if they send an email to someone else, hey, I sent it to Joe Schmuckatelli, my job is done, right? It's Joe's issue now. But when asked about the test, they tell their boss, I emailed it, right? And I never heard back. Really? I mean, they're just down the hall or they're just one floor away. Really? Go visit them. Once I was pressed to get all Sarbanes-Oxley controls tested over an eight-week period, we had 250-some controls at this bank. That was a lot. This was back when SOX first came out. I had a team of eight auditors to do this um, project. Test to control takes about 10 hours per control, right? You need to get evidence from the control owner. We had eight weeks, which meant we had to average 31 controls a week divided by eight auditors, that's four controls per week. And that's stretching it, right? Considering if, you know, the 10 hours per control, but that's if everything lines up. If you get all the evidence that you need in time, you have to request the evidence from the business owner, have them generate the evidence, have us receive the evidence, do the test, form a conclusion and then write the work paper. And then they had to bring it to me for review and approval. That's if all the stars lined up. So after the first week, none of the eight auditors had completed a single control. Why, I asked, right? They said, because so-and-so didn't respond to my request for evidence. Fuming, 
I instituted some stop go processes internally and I forced the team to meet with me and update the board. I had a big board with all the controls written on it daily. So business owners, then I told the business owners, they have 24 hours to respond to a request that usually went out on Monday. That meant we got it on, on Tuesday, maybe Wednesday morning. So if we hadn't received those requests by those time, then the auditor would escalate to me and then I would get with the, with the control owner and they got it to me quicker. So by Thursday of the week, our meetings turned into review and test results. We managed to complete the first pass testing in about eight weeks. Then we could focus on helping them remediate. So lobbying over the wall and saying not it and making excuses transfers accountability. You can transfer responsibility, but accountability always rests with you. The next one, we're almost done, I promise, right? Seek out the best and most positive communication technique for your peer culture. Thank you, Doc, for this suggestion. Do they text most? Do they use Twitter? Do they use Microsoft Teams? Do they use Google Hangouts? I love texting and, and you know, I don't know how I lived without it, but there's some people in my life who insist on talking on the phone and I don't always have time for a sit down conversation with someone who just likes to talk on and on. God bless them. But ugh, I can carry on a text conversation over the course of the day, right? You could have more interaction with me if you just text me. I have one friend who, if there are any more than two texts, he calls to talk. It's like, I just don't feel like texting. So this, this goes with figuring out how people absorb information. Some people, like your coworkers, you can just ask them, right? How do you best hear information? My boss loves to be in the details. For her level, she shouldn't be, and I'm on her about it all the time, but she loves to dig into a spreadsheet. She just loves the detail, the nitty gritty. I, I love, I give her um, bubbled up graphs, right? So I give her graphs and charts and explain to her in very concise sentences everything. And she gets the message in a matter of seconds, but she still wants to traipse around in the detail. So I nurture both. The rest of my team, text and chat, they love it. My user base, short email. They don't have time for much more. So crafting a great subject line and then getting to the point quickly in the communication works for the rest of the 25,000 people. So figure it out, right? Don't stick to your way, find out their way. And then you'll eliminate a lot of frustration and be understood and heard clearly quickly. And then finally, don't use too many words. IT folks, we're notorious for this. We use way too many words on the page. What we need to do is use pictures and then short explanations. And that leads me to crayons. You should use crayons on a daily basis. One year, I gave my entire department a pack of crayons. It was to remind them to simplify complex concepts into consumable pieces and be concise. Drawing on a blank piece of paper actually reaches a very instinctual part of ourselves and others. We've been expressing ideas since the dawn of time on cave walls and with clay or pigment or dyes. And remember, as kids, we used crayons and pencils before we could even talk. We understand pictures. Children today are using devices, but they're still drawing on the wall or they're drawing on hopefully paper. So a slide deck or a document or some electronic resource isn't always the best solution. Just draw a picture, right? Language isn't always just letters on the page. You've heard pictures worth 10,000 words, right? Or uh, Ivan Turnigev in 1862 said, drawing shows me at a glance what would be spread over 10 pages in a book. So in those 10 pages, would you explain how encryption works or try to persuade your leadership to buy a new tool or deploy a new technology or switch from AWS to Azure? Complex topics, all of them are. It would take you 10 pages or more at least to explain it, especially to someone not in your profession, someone without your expertise, but who is still responsible for your budget. Or in those 10 pages, you had to bridge the experience of geographical gap or cultural gap, you had to bring a team of people together. Sometimes a blank piece of paper and colored pencils can start a very productive conversation. And the next one is the key to being successful, breaking those con complex concepts down into consumable pieces. 
One challenge, I was bringing a chain of acquired banks. And this is one of my favorite stories I like to tell. Um, and then I'll wrap up. Um, my Louisiana staff told me of a regional manager, a regional VP at a branch was exasperated by the number of information security policies and standards they, they now had to abide by since we were acquired them. And he was shocked and very loudly and adamantly resistant. My team couldn't get anywhere with him. So I flew down, we drove up to the branch and I had two team members with me and they too were exasperated and giving up. I didn't know what I was walking into, but I didn't let them know that. When we got to the bank, I went to a small conference room and then in March, six people, followed by a very disgruntled looking gentleman wearing a suit and tie. It looked like a room full of lawyers, like something out of the firm. After, you know, polite introductions, he, he started pulling a series of four inch binders, you know, the big ones from under the table and dramatically slamming them each on the table and boom and boom. And I watched calmly. I noticed the smirks on the faces of everybody else in the room and noticed my team was both embarrassed and afraid because they didn't know what was going to happen next. What they didn't know is that I had helped write those policies. I had audited the company's compliance with those policies. And now I was responsible for the entire bank's implementation of those policies. But they didn't know that. He looked at the binders and said to me, how do you expect us to comply with everything in these binders? After a dramatic pause, I just leaned back in my chair and I said, I don't. And then I reached over and took the binders one by one and put them on the floor underneath me. And I stood up and I got a dry erase marker and I went over to the whiteboard. And I don't know what they thought I was gonna do, but I pointed at a lady on the end and I said her name and I said, help me understand what you do every day. She was puzzled and I said, you arrive here at the branch, you walk in and what do you do? You got your coffee, you got your purse. And she started talking. And as she started talking, I started writing down the boxes on the board. And as I did this, others started loosening up and chiming in, and they excitedly suggested boxes and whatever process they were describing. The VP just sat there and watched, like, where's she going with this, right? After the whiteboard was full and I'd called on everyone to explain to me their days and everyone in the room was relaxed and chilled out and satisfied they'd been heard, hours had gone by. Then I found a different color marker, and then I asked, okay, now. Here are your controls. And I asked how they did the things that were in the boxes. And I put a circle around them. And then I write in little letters what system they used, or if it was manual, what piece of paper they used. And then I took another colored marker and I went through the entire humongous, one of them big whiteboards in a big room. Um, I went through the entire picture and wrote the policy number. And sometimes I could write the policy section. Uh, for the, where the controls applied above the control. And they, they didn't even know that they were doing these controls. And then I sat down and looked at the VP and said, you, you already comply. The VP and his staff were the experts in the room in banking, but I was the expert in control and information security. I showed them the respect they deserved and I taught them how what they already did met the requirements. But at the end, they were even suggesting better controls. And the VP ended up being a very close ally. So that was a, a really great story. So always get to the so what. So if you're doing a presentation, you're doing a slide, you're trying to persuade some people, get to the so what. Get to the so what quickly. So what you're saying is, so I, I meet with the president of the bank. I was showing her weekly update of her controls. And she looked at me and said, so Robin, what you're saying is, and then it, it occurred to me that if anyone ever says, so what you're saying is, then they've had to do too much cognitive processing to understand your message. You've used too many words. There's too much extraneous information on the page. She doesn't have time for this. This isn't her expertise. So if you hear, so what you're saying is, then you need to find a better way to explain it and get to the so what quicker. 
And then learning requires relatability. So you're trying to explain something to someone, regardless of who they are, what role they're in. You're tell, tell a story, right, that conjures something they can relate to, to get their understanding quicker. For example, you logged into the meeting tonight. You may or not may not have tested your microphone. Um, you log into lots of meetings, right? for this internship and probably log into lots of them for your coursework. Well, just imagine if through this chat connection, while you're listening to me while eating dinner, playing with the dog or watching TV or only half listening, I've hacked your connection and used a network injection device to take over your computer and copy everything to a third location. I can be done and gone by the time we finish this conversation. So see how I related that to you? I used something you knew. You logged into Chime to relate to the concept of how malware or key logging or any number of things can happen so I can take over your machine. Now, honestly, this can't be done, so don't everybody freak out. You know, Chime is 256, 256 AES encryption, so it can't be done, okay? So don't freak out. But I was able to give you a concept that you could relate with. Bye-bye, Thomas. And finally, the last topic, and uh, people can come in and check out the recording to hear the last one, is fear, uncertainty, and doubt. So FUD. So fear, uncertainty, and doubt works sometimes too. It's particularly effective when you're an internal audit or you're trying to persuade a business uh, owner to do something you need them to do. So one time my audit team was unsuccessful in getting this business VP to execute spreadsheet controls we needed him to do. The whole company was putting in these controls. He stubbornly said no to every one of my auditors. He just couldn't be bothered with it. Now the company had just received an MOU, and if you don't know what that is, it's a memorandum of understanding from the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission. It's a pretty serious thing. Basically, it said, get your act together in terms of controls or we'll chain your doors, which actually happens. And you know about banking. I mean, the, the regulators can shut you down. So the CEO declared to the whole company that all effort would be put into fixing these issues. We had 18 months to do it, and the company wouldn't be approved for any acquisitions until an external auditor validated that we did everything we needed to do. My team was charged with helping the business close these gaps. So knowing this, I got a meeting with this VP and I paid him a visit. He'd been resistant. I sat and listened to him arrogantly explain how spreadsheet controls program was a waste of time and stupid, and he had more important things for his department to be doing. I listened for about 10 minutes, and when he was done, I pulled out a single piece of paper. Remember we talked about just a single piece of paper. And on it, I'd put a couple of boxes with the CEO and the board of directors and the audit committee, who really one and the same, at the top. And I turned it around on the table and I pushed it towards them and I said, okay, would you like to appear at the next audit committee meeting and explain to them what you just explained to me? After a dramatic pause, he said, what do I need to do? He related, <laughs> and a simple picture helped him get there. So in summary, be a good person, right? Let it show. Be the expert without being arrogant. People will line up behind you. Be flexible. Change is constant. Surf the change curve. Low-tech paper and shoe leather, leather are sometimes the best method. And draw on a daily basis. Draw pictures. Next week, I had so many topics, I had to break this up into a couple of weeks. Oh, it's going to be two weeks from now. I won't be able uh, available next week. Toot your horn without blowing it. So there's a book of, by the same title, but it's really hard to toe the line, you know, being able to promote yourself or talk about yourself or, or even uh, talk to other people about yourself without blowing it, without looking like that arrogant person. Follow up the importance of following up, and then the corporation doesn't care about you, but the people do. And then do you spend your time or do you invest it? So those will be included in next week's
So that wraps it up. I think we ran a little long. I apologize for that. Thanks for everybody who is still hanging out with me. Do I have any questions? Before we wrap up. Oh, thank you, Doc. Thank you, Thomas. Thanks, Corey. Sorry, I kept you a little late, everyone. I just wanted to say quickly, uh, you reminded me, I don't know if anyone has seen that commercial, but it's a little girl and it's about the dishwasher and using the proper dish detergent in the dishwasher. And so her mother has to rinse the plate before they put it in the dishwasher. And she's just a darling little girl. And she gets right up on the camera and she says, so if mom has to wash the dishes before they go in the dishwasher, what does the dishwasher do? do. And, and you reminded me of that earlier on when you said, you know, all the binders, forget all that. Let's just, what do you do? Tell me what you do. Right. And so, excellent, Robin. Thank you so Thank you. much for your time. And you. uh, we have these regularly as Robin can come in and work with us. And it just makes synergy amongst us. And interestingly enough, uh, a continuation of sorts will happen in AHOD uh, in Doc's Corner. I mean, I guess great minds think alike uh, this Saturday. So I look forward to seeing everyone there. And thank you again. All right. Thanks for coming, everyone. And have a great night. And I'll see you on Saturday. <laughs>